0: Welcome to this edition of our EdTech Roundup. And today we're going to welcome our guest, Fiona Aubrey-Smith. Now, Fiona is a highly influential education expert with a strong background in teaching and learning. And she was named one of the 50 most influential people in education in 2022. She's the director of One Life Learning and the founder of PedTech, which is providing strategic services to um, schools. EdTech companies and learning providers, and she's a fellow of the Chartered College of Teaching, an associate lecturer and a researcher at the Open University, and she serves on the board of multi-academy trusts and charitable trusts. Recent publication in conjunction with Professor Peter Twining, entitled From EdTech to PedTech, Changing the Way We Think About Digital Technology in Education, and Changing the Way We Think About Digital Technology from Systems and Processes. To a focus on pedagogy-led technology use has been published and is a, is a must-read for anybody interested in this sector. But first, Rose, what's in the news this week?
1: Well, actually, Karine, I think you picked something up that was quite interesting from our Secretary of State here in the UK. Now, obviously, we are appealing to a global audience, but uh, I think what we're hearing from our Secretary of State for Education won't necessarily be miles away from what other people might be hearing from their ministers across different countries.
0: That's true, Rose. Gillian Keegan uh, has been on multiple platforms, but particularly on the radio, and she said that AI could transform teachers' day-to-day work by reducing time-consuming tasks. She's also stated that AI is not yet at the required standard for all areas of education, but it has the potential to reduce the burden on teachers' So the Department for Education will publish a statement setting out the opportunities and risks of AI in education. Well, actually, that's been published now, so we can look at it. But but is this a little bit too late, Rose, after the horse has bolted with thousands of students sort of exploring AI um, through um, GPT, for example, and knowing that you al- already, Rose, um, published a report in 2020 identifying the risks and proposing an ethical framework. So what do you think? I find myself caught,
1: Karine, between two positions. For decades, I've been trying to encourage educators to get enthused about AI, because I do believe AI is a very powerful tool and that it could really be superpower for a teacher and for a learner it can help individualize education help students study at their own pace there's lots of great things even just at the interface you know voice activated interfaces so that students don't have to use a keyboard can be hugely powerful and yet at the same time I found that that's not been of broad appeal um, to most educators understandably they've got loads of things happening in their world and you know, AI was just one thing too many, then chat GPT comes along and everybody wants to talk about it, um, which is great. I'm really pleased people want to talk about it. But I now find myself in an odd position, because whereas I was the person saying, you know, this can be super helpful. And yes, we've got to use it ethically, but there's Hugely powerful things we can do with AI. I now constantly find myself in that position of going, "Well, we really do need to be careful here with this technology." So I find it quite—I find myself quite challenged sometimes. It is an amazing technology. When I say it, I mean AI. But I think the key problem we have at the moment, and where your question about is it too little, too late? Has the horse bolted? Is that because we haven't woken up? to the importance of AI previously, we're now in quite a dangerous position because we have a huge imbalance of power where the majority of the world are completely ignorant about how AI works, what it can do, what it can't do, what it's good for, how they should use it carefully, what the risks are, et cetera, et cetera. And a few people, and unfortunately most of them in highly profitable large tech companies, other people who are basically telling the rest of the world all about AI and and how it should be used. I find it amazing that Elon Musk is the person saying, "Oh, we need to step back." And you can bet your bottom dollar if Elon Musk is saying, "Let's step back." It's 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 not necessarily for the good of humanity. It's for the for the good of his bottom line. Uh, so I think we do really need to grasp the nettle, acknowledge that we are behind the eight ball, so to speak. And look at how we can help educators in particular, but students, of course, too, and parents to understand enough about AI to help them navigate the position that we're now in. Because regulation, important as it is, will always be behind because it takes time to get regulation in place. With the Institute of Ethical AI and Ed's framework to help educators choose and select AI, yes, that's still useful, but we need much more. And the key thing is to help people understand about AI. So I actually find myself you know, agreeing with part of what Julian Keegan is saying, that AI is not suitable for, for all elements of education. But I also find myself slightly worried by the emphasis on work, workload reduction, because whilst I do agree that AI can be a powerful tool for reducing teacher workload, I wouldn't like that to be the key driver. I would like the key driver for the way we use AI to be the enhancement of the teaching and learning process. So yes, it's an interesting situation, but I'm just really pleased the conversation is happening. But one other thing that Gillian Keegan said uh, recently on the radio this week, actually, when she was talking about a little bit about AI and and other factors of the way that education is panning out in the UK, she also made a comment about our inspection. So most countries have a system of quality control for their education systems. And in the UK, it's something called Ofsted. And Ofsted conduct inspections. And one of the controversial things of the moment is that they give schools a one word grading, such as outstanding. And we had a very sad case recently where a head teacher committed suicide because she felt so pressured by the inspection process and the fear of the power of this one-word evaluation. So I really wanted to ask you, Karine, you know, what do you think about Ofsted, the role of Ofsted, the existence of these one-word evaluations? Because I think it is important, as I say, not just for the UK, but across the world as we look to see how we evaluate our education systems. That's a really interesting one. I have to point out because the, the, the news has all been saying about
0: the one word inspections. Now, I think I think we're doing Offsted down because you can get a rating that's two words requires improvement. So I have to tell you that because <laughs> they have they have expanded in their ratings. You know, there's three one words and one two word. Now, I'm going to tell you, my score was rated as outstanding. So I'm saying this to you and, you know, I should be sitting here saying, yes. I think, you know, what they do is wonderful. But I truly believe, having been through numerous Ofsted inspections in my 20 years as head and 40 years as a teacher, that they're flawed. And that's going to sound strange for somebody who had an outstanding school or, according to Ofsted, graded as outstanding, to say I should really be saying completely the opposite. Now, this why do I say that? Well, I say it because it's so focused on data and cohorts that what it hinders is the level of training and research that could take place in schools. We don't use the data necessarily in the right way, which is, and um, you know, we don't talk about the research teachers should be taking part in. is rarely the subject of the inspection itself. Schools are com- complex places with their own nuances, which are difficult for inspectors to gauge in one or two days and, and to certainly sum up in one or two words. Now, for those of you who've never been through an Ofsted inspection, let me let me explain to you what it's like. It's like being a sailor stranded in the middle of an ocean with no sense of when the rescue ship will arrive and when it will all be over. And every passing moment is filled with anxiety for many staff and uncertainty because the the, the framework with which it's do, is being developed for Ofsted keeps changing as well. So staff are constantly preparing. You know, for any, evaluate, uh, any eventuality. And this waiting game can be exhausting and time consuming, leaving very little room for key focus areas of work. And cohort data becomes the thread throughout many schools on which systems and processes are based rather than the pedagogy being highlighted. Performance reviews for teachers place too much focus on data achievements within maths and English you know, through these just narrow strands for each class. And we start seeing cohorts rather than seeing the pupils as individuals. Little is asked about research and development that teachers are engaged in. And in the late, you know, and the latest training for Ofsted is often prioritised over um, pedagogy, vision, you know, and subject development. And this leads to prioritising performance over process, which always worries me. So what we find is a one and done approach in schools. You know, we don't have we talk about growth mindset, but we've got so much to cover that there's no true standards. We're not aiming for you know for giving children a chance to make mistakes, have a go at things, try again and really learn and get a deep understanding. And against this background, what happens is that teachers don't aren't able to develop their craft or even deliver feedback effectively. So we have a surface-level approach, not a deep one. And that's what happens when. You have a framework that actually is controlled in a way that does not recognise the dynamics and the different nuances of schools. And so what happens is you end up with schools that play games, looking at questions that give you three marks against questions that give you five. Well, let's concentrate on those questions because the students will get better performance or better grades. If And you have to think as well, because there's the deep dive inspections. Well, how does that work if you're in a small primary school with... Three teachers who so are doing how many subjects each, compared to perhaps a school where you've got numerous subject specialists. So, unfortunately, what frameworks across the world need to consider that schools are very individualised in their context and their complexity. And we have to be, if we if we put a stranglehold on it, then what happens is that teachers don't have the opportunity to really develop and experiment with the pedagogies that will support their students and their learning and to learn from each other. So in my school, we had a, a, an Irish system and teachers used to plan a lesson and then they used to sit down uh, with popcorn and crisps afterwards. I know that might sound strange. And they used to look through that lesson to see how it had affected the students and how the teachers could improve that lesson. That takes time to do. You can't do that in two minutes. But when they're replanning, was that given any credence within the Ofsteds that I had? No. And it is outstanding in a two-day inspection. Outstanding the day the inspectors aren't there. I, I'll leave that one with you. You know, I, you're only as good as the day that you're working. And 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 there's so much more to a school than a one or two-word um, summary. And remember, sorry, I'm just going to say this because this is another point that really worries me. The parents who look to 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 the schools, it, Gillian Keegan said something like, um, "It's very simple for parents to understand." by having a one or two, you know, this this short summary. It's easy for parents to grasp. So I understand they want something easy for parents to grasp, but in doing this, what they've done is they've muddied the water. Think if you're a parent with a, a, a special needs, you can get four of the grades as good and one as one not so well, and you can still be inadequate out of the five judgments that you have to hit. And so parents aren't getting a clear view of what is good or what isn't good. And they're relying on one word. How many parents are reading the full inspection? And even if they read the full inspection, does it tell them enough?
1: So what parents have, they visit the schools, don't go by the Ofsted. I think that sounds really important advice, Karine. And, and one thing just to add to it, of course, one of the really positive things that we can do with AI is with the right data, we would be able to evidence the process of learning. And actually, I can see a world where you wouldn't need inspections, because you'd be having a kind of formative evaluation in the background all the time. Of course, there are huge ethical implications to that. And we need to be really careful that we didn't create a big brother system. But the fact that we can now start to track the learning process means that I think we could rethink inspection in a digital age to make it far less stressful and much more effective, and much more useful for parents too.
0: I'm yes, and, and AI, sorry, can I just pick up AI as we know, the thing it does well is crunch data. Think how much time teachers spend crunching data and making um, suggestions based on that, when actually, we, could, as you said, we could get down to a much finer level as well
1: with that for individuals. Definitely. And it could be supportive. It would need to be designed carefully. Now, the second piece of news, which I think we'll do quite quickly because I want to get to the, to the main part of the show, which is talking to Fiona about her book. But actually, I think this particular piece of news might be something that um, Fiona, I hope, will have a view about. And that is that uh, this week on Monday, in fact, the OECD produced an interesting publication about early years called Empowering Young Children in the Digital Age, Starting Strong. And it's looking at very young children, nursery provision, infant provision, and looking at the way that digital technologies could be used to empower their learning. There are five key challenges that the report identifies, and you can download the report for free from the OECD website. We can put a link um, with the pod notes so that people can go and download it. But there are five key challenge areas Uh, protecting children against digital risks, reducing digital dividers, developing young children's early digital literacy, enhancing quality interactions with children and families and supporting work processes and quality assurance. And this report obviously seemed to be extremely important by OECD. Andrea Sleiser came to the UK and launched the report himself in person on Monday And I think it's really interesting to have a report that's focusing specifically on such young children in a digital age. And I wanted to ask you, Karine, and you, Fiona, about your views about technology and very young children. Right. The thing that I, I think you've got to consider first,
0: I want to, we see young children using technology much earlier than ever before. Uh, you've only got to walk around a shop to see children you know in their prams, using their iPads and all sorts of things. But I want you to consider a moment, because we are talking about early years provision. Actually, the amount of time that children actually spend in early years provision. So they three and four-year-olds spend, I was thinking about this, about 15 hours a week of funded time in early years setting which over the year is probably only about 6.5% of their lives. Now, five-year-old, when they get into school, spend six hours a day for 190 days approximately. That's only 13% of their time. So the first thing that you've got to think about is that parents are essential in the process. And, and that's across the world. And the, and the report picks up that parents are essential. Now, no parent has a child determined to do their worst, but we never consider how early we could start this because when you first have a child you're desperate for information on the best you can provide for your child so i I often wonder it's at this time when we're when we go to the hospitals and when we have our our sessions on um you know having giving birth and everything if we should start as really as early as that thinking about some of the key things that we should talk to parents about before they start with the ipad you know because when you're walking with a pram you want the communication and the parent talking to each other and the pram facing you you know at what point do you introduce that and and how do you know it's safe when they're sitting you're having dinner and they're sitting there and they use your ipad have you thought about that because parents want to know but they're overloaded very quickly so is should we go as early as that is the one thing now that's not mentioned in the report worldwide there is a shortage of staff and we are becoming over-reliant to fill the gaps on these staff to to help With our young people. Now, if we've only got a very short time in school and we've got in all of these countries, whole sets of learning goals and we've got a shortage of staff, we've got to decide which are the most important goals and do less of more value. And I believe that this is absolutely key. Teaching children um, about the digital risks is key. And there's loads of ways. I've talked about it on the programme before that you can do this with young children you know, loads of unplugged activities and they mention it in there. But actually, we end up doing surface, bolt-on, stick-on plaster effects to everything because we we come across, we have in all of these policies, so many goals that no human person can possibly do them all in any great depth, in any meaningful way. So my view is if if, if we want a policy like this to have teeth, apart from the fact that we need people to, A, we need staff to be trained well, and we need more places available, because not just in the UK, but there are a shortage of places and key staff, and what we've got is apprentices filling the gaps, but actually we're losing very experienced staff the other way, then what we've got to do is use that time wisely and remember how short that time is, and nobody pays attention to the actual shortage of time you've got to deliver this. So what within this whole package are the keys that are going to be the non-negotiables? And against all the other learning goals that you have in your countries. Yeah. So look at what's your context and then put them all together and say, OK, what are the essential ones? And what can we get rid of so that we do a few things well rather than a sticking plaster to say we've touched the policy? Because that's what happens over and over again and why digital technology and all these all these people spending huge amounts of time having these discussions have no impact at all. Because we add it on, we bolt it on to the other nine million things that we expect somebody to do in 6.5% of time that they've got the young people for, or for parents at the wrong time when they're back at work. So before they go to work and they're thinking about having their baby and they're going to parenting classes, is there a one or two things we could do there? That's
1: just my first thoughts on this. I, I really take home your point about focus. Interestingly, I was I was lucky enough to be at the launch events um, on Monday. And there was a lot of discussion about the importance of this unplugged approach. So not actually having the technology necessarily being used, but doing activities that support technology use in the future, which I was really pleased to hear. But Fiona, I'd love to come to you and then we can move into talking about your your book. Um, You were an infant teacher, I believe. I'm guessing you might have a view on this and I'd love to know what it is.
2: Yeah, I was very much um an infant school teacher. And I think at heart I always will be. I think there's a there's a joyfulness of working with children of that age that 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 never leaves you. Um, and it's really interesting when we think about early years and technology, and what was really interesting in in some of the, the themes that have come out from the OECD report and from what Karim was saying just then, um, about the way that we talk about early years using technology. And I think sometimes some of the uh, the confusion, the complexities, the, the mysteries in this space are because some of the vocabulary is used in a very interchangeable kind of way. So you hear parents of, ch- of very young children say, no, I don't want them to use technology at school because they're using it a lot at home and I don't want too much screen time. They're, they're very real, very understandable concerns, but of course we're we're using this word screen time to conflate passive absorption or television watching or you know low-level um games or apps uh, or whatever it might be with meaningful, purposeful, constructive uses of technologies in different ways. So I think that using that kind of using technology, using screen time vocabulary can be a little bit unhelpful at times. And I think greater precision would be a huge advantage um, when we're in this, this conversational space. The second thing is I think sometimes we don't necessarily realise how much technology our very youngest children are exposed to in a way that they don't see as technology. So um, I'm sure you're where um, Professor Rosie Fluitt at um, Manchester Metropolitan University is doing this fascinating study at the moment about toddlers and tech and their use of language around technology. And I remember her talking early stages about um, a family she was working with where the parents said they they weren't wanting their child to be using technology at all. They're quite adamant about this. And then in the study in the home environment, um, the researchers were identifying the child was helping turn the washing on by changing the dials and the buttons and the settings. And they were having video calls with family members. And there's this lovely story about the child, his little friend had moved away and they kept in contact. I think they were, Uh, Three years old, I think, they kept in contact by video call. and, And, you know, this huge amount of technology that actually a very young child was using confidently and capably and knowledgeably, but they weren't necessarily using the word technology to describe it. So I think the way that we talk about all of this, the vocabulary that we use, the precision is very, very important if we're going to make purposeful and clear and directive steps forward in improving a provision for our our very youngest learners and and I'm sure that's something that's very dear to the hearts of of both of you.
1: Very wise words uh, Fiona and I couldn't agree with you more and I think that's a great way to move on to talk about your book. Karine I'm going to hand back.
0: Yes well just before just to say to Fiona I think that's a fantastic point Fiona and again training comes into that doesn't it because again again we want all stakeholders to use techno to use terminology correctly so that actually we're having those meaningful discussions because that often goes wrong in so many settings, doesn't it? So that, I think that was such a that's a fantastic point. Okay, and now for the key topic, which is your book from EdTech to PedTech, changing the way we think about digital technology and education. Now, in September 20. 23, a digital service will be tested in Blackpool and Portsmouth with a goal of assisting school leaders in technology planning. And this tool was developed by the DfB will assist um, their current technology against digital standards and recommend areas for enhancement and provide actionable suggestions. However, in the light of um, your book's message of valuing learners as individuals and change the way we think about digital technology um, and education, what is your perspective on this development? That's a
2: really interesting um, question, and in, it's 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 important when we think about any types of uses of edtech and any things that we're going to do moving forward to think about that relationship between the individual and the organisation. You alluded to this, um, Rose and Queen, early on. Um, In this conversation, you were talking about learners often being seen in context of organizations. We talk about cohorts of learners, for example, Um, and we talked about, you know, focuses on um, teacher workload as as, as being seen as the individual is being seen in context of the organization that they're part of. And that's a very real, very pragmatic challenge that we all live with and, and work with. But I think also we need to remember that everybody is an individual and a human being. And and I think actually sometimes we need to start there and and, and recognise that and value that and celebrate that. And that's at the heart of what this, this book is all about. It's about understanding our pedagogical beliefs, understanding the way we look at teaching and learning, understanding what we mean when we say to learn, to teach, to develop knowledge, et cetera. Um, And then thinking about how technology can help us on that journey. So technology is playing a supporting role, not being the way that we frame our thinking about everything else um, that follows. And that journey is an individual one. Whatever we do, whatever systems we use, whatever implementation models we take on, um, whatever processes and policies we adopt, ultimately we're all human beings and we'll all interpret that and realise that in, in you know making it happen in a in a unique way that's specific to us that's specific to how we see the world that's specific to our understanding. I mean, Rose, you talk about this in the most wonderful way in your um, machine learning and human intelligence um, book about the way that our our knowledge our our epistemic, epistemological understanding just shapes what we do and how we do it. Um, and that's so important for us all to, to develop and understand. So, you know, that's my that's my core music, core music, core message. <laughs> we are we are human beings and we are working in organisations in these contexts,
0: um, but we do need to think about both separately and collectively. And what's nice there, Fiona, is that you've mentioned again the precision in language that we start with. You started with that about the precision in how we talk about what teaching is, what is learning. So there's a key message underlying this. What do you think are the main challenges, though, in shifting from ed tech to ped tech, and how can we address these challenges, Fiona? Sure, another great
2: question. I think um, to start with, it's just being really clear on what we're trying to achieve, the how, but even more importantly, the why we're trying to achieve it. You know what what's the what's the driver there? Um, in the book, I talk a, a lot about pedagogical alignment and closing that pedagogical alignment gap. So. We, we know that as, as human beings, what we, what we say in conversation and buzzwords we use and, and narratives that we, that we follow, what we intend to do or what we think it is that we're trying to achieve and what we actually enact in our practice can be completely perfectly aligned, but more often than not are actually slightly out of, out of sync with each other. And that's, that's a very human, very normal thing. But of course, what we want to do is make sure that what we believe and what we're trying to do and what we do are as aligned as they can be. And why is that important? Well, because otherwise we can completely contradict ourselves in terms of our plans and in terms of how we communicate things and how we um, enact different kinds of teaching and learning experiences. And for our learners, that can create some very, very mixed messages. You know, if we're saying um, that we don't believe that tests are, are are worth doing, that we don't like an assessment-based system, we don't want to keep practicing, you know, teach the test, all these things. But actually then we are um, prioritizing tests within our classrooms and we are celebrating, you know, class league tables and class leaderboards and all these sorts of things. We're giving two very contradictory messages to our learners and our learners are learning way more from us than the content and the curriculum that they're growing up with. So, you know, if we all think back to our own childhood, we'll all remember a pivotal classroom teacher. And it might be for a great reason. Maybe they inspired us. Or it might be for a terrible reason, you know, that it had a really um, detrimental effect on us. But we'll remember them. And what we don't remember is the content that they necessarily taught us. We remember how they taught it to us. We remember how they made us feel as a learner. We remember the the deep seated values that they conveyed through their actions, through their words. We're doing that for this current generation of children in our classroom practices. And we're doing it whether we realize it or not. So if we, if we recognize that, if we acknowledge that, what we just want to try and do is become gradually incrementally, perhaps more aware of the little things in our day-to-day practices that are becoming embedded messages for the children in our classrooms. And that's why this pedagogical alignment thing is, is so important because it helps us to do that by making our beliefs and our intentions explicit in our own minds helps us to think about the explicit actions that we're carrying out, our words, our body language, our eye contact, our decisions, priorities, choices in the moment of learning and what those are conveying to the children that we work with. So I think self-awareness and guiding educators to become more aware of beliefs of intentions and of the impact of practices is absolutely got to be at the heart of any future development and of any future practice for all of us. It's a a never-ending journey, isn't it?
0: I think you're so right, Fiona, and I think what's important there, you're talking about the hidden curriculum there, aren't you, where Mm -hmm. children learn all these things from from, you know, our, as you say, our body language, the way we look, um, what we say and what we do, the contrast between what we say and what we do. And what's important there for me is that I see so many schools who write vision statements and mission statements and then don't have the language that backs it up or the, uh, because again, their focus is taken away, is pulled away onto something else. And I think going back to that starting point of what is your vision? For learning how do we enact that in practice what are the words that you utilize and how do you act and do we spend enough time on that and that is absolutely vital and one of the, the one of the, the the reasons why I find Ofsted so frustrating because we spend more time on that of the planning for a, a framework than we do on on that piece of work which should be the heart of what we do in every school
2: Can I share with you a really interesting anecdote from um, a piece of research I did for the Technology, Pedagogy and Education Association a few months ago, um, where we we looked um, across two huge schools at what the um, alignment of pedagogical beliefs were for all the, the teachers and the leaders in those schools. And it was absolutely fascinating because even though across these two big schools, They had an agreed teaching and learning strategy, an agreed vision and agreed policy. And on the surface, absolute cohesion across the staff in buying into that and wanting to deliver on that, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, as you go in, it looks like the most coherent, cohesive um, uh, pair of schools in terms of that vision. But when we actually dug into different beliefs of different teachers and different learners, there was huge, huge variance And only about 50-ish percent of staff were in agreement with any other group of staff. Um, And that was quite profound. And there were significant outliers uh, when it came to things like view on knowledge. There was a huge difference between views of teachers and views of leaders. When you think about the um, role of schooling in relation to education, again, leaders had a very different view to classroom teachers and, and so on and so on. Um, and if you dig into the literature in that space, that's quite common that you work, that it's very common to have that variance between views around what teaching is and what the role of a teacher is, and views around what it means to be a learner and what learning looks like and how knowledge is um, created, and all these things. But there isn't, even when you've got an agreed vision, an agreed teaching and learning strategy, you can still have massive variance um, between staff. And therefore, I think to say, that we've got an agreed teaching and learning vision, therefore we're all doing the same thing, is, is very, very naive, isn't it? We know this. Incredibly. And so if we look at that through the eyes of a child who is, you know, in a school, that's the person who matters most. Through the eyes of a child, if they're having these very, very different messages about what it means to learn and be a learner in different subjects, different classes, different interventions, you know, different year groups, how are they going to make sense of the world around them how are they going to make sense of their own identity as a learner and and what it means to them to learn so i think there's a very a very big thought provocation in that that demands that we say okay for our learners how are they seeing what we do how are they internalizing this experience and i know that's
0: something that was very deeply important to you um in your own school leadership kareem it was, and sending not just other adults from different schools to look at our vision, are we living it, but children from different schools and children to see. You get a very different view. You have to be very bold to do it because they'll tell you warts and all, and they certainly did to me. Now, one of the things that I'm really pleased to see in your book is you highlight trust, the word trust. Now, that's really important to me because it's something I'm talking to lots of schools about at the moment because it's this the word trust is so important. And in your book, you highlight that trust changes everything because digital technology changes the power dynamics by empowering learners, making them more you know, proactive. And that's what you're talking about now, and responsible for their own learning. However, there's a, la- a lack of trust in learners and teachers can hinder the adoption of digital technology, especially in schools. So how can trust be built within schools to ensure that technology is used to its absolute fullest potential? Mm, great question. I think
2: in terms of trust, it's really important to think um, think about this in, in multiple layers. And sometimes trust can be of oneself. And sometimes we're talking about trust of of others, of peers, of colleagues, and they might be um, uh, colleagues we work alongside, colleagues we work for, etc. But the central thing there is about teachers trusting children and children trusting teachers. And some of that is very practical stuff about if I'm a child, I need to trust that my teacher will keep me safe, that my teacher will help me learn appropriate and relevant and purposeful things. And I need to trust that I'm in an environment, a school environment where I'm valued as a learner. I'm recognized as an individual. And what I do will matter to me and to the community that I'm part of. So as a child, I need to I need to trust in the teacher and those around me, and that includes other children, that that culture, that environment is there. That's not specific to technology, actually. That's just about a great learning environment and a fair and a democratic and an inclusive learning environment, isn't it? It's not specific to technology, but there are some specific things in there when we talk about technology, um, particularly around around safety and quality and equality um, that, that really matter. And then there's the, the, the trust relationship the other way around. That as a teacher, I want to be able to trust the children in my classes, my students, and I want to be able to trust them that when I say um explore this resource or create that creative artifact or you know um uh explore this kind of new idea, whatever it might be, I need to as a teacher, to be able to trust the students are going to do that purposefully and responsibly and uh, democratically with the other um, peers in the classroom. And that doesn't happen by accident. Again, that comes back to um, as a teacher, am I creating a culture where this is an expectation where this is the norm, and I support that, and I've taught that, and I've facilitated that, and I've enabled that, and I've made that happen and celebrated and i don't mean like party celebration but recognize the achievements and the great work when it does happen so i mean trust is a is a it's a very busy little bumblebee moving between all the different stakeholders in this group isn't it child to child child to teacher teacher to child teacher to peer to leader you know and of course around all of that and you spoke about this right at the beginning of the podcast that role of families um and families and parents And actually that broader community, whether that's the wider profession or the local, the geographical community. um, It's about valuing the professionalism of the teachers and leaders in school, that they know what they're doing. They are doing the right thing for the children, for the students. um, And that will get the children to a place in their learner identity that will help them evolve as as young people. That that professional respect and, and trust. Um, but also that what's happening within school trusts the community and family beyond school that values learning in the home, that values the role of parents and families as co-educators of our young people, and that values the contributions of all the different communities that that learner is moving in and out of. You know the home environment, the school environment, their clubs, their friends, their families, the the local town centre. You know all of these different things. We are collectively creating some that that life experience for each individual learner and so the trust is sort of you know the bumblebee zipping in and out from that learner to all the people that are involved in that learner's lives and it takes us you know full circle almost to where we started the conversation on
0: this podcast so trust is powerful isn't it it's it's a powerful leader oh when you were talking all I could think of was superman you know with great power comes great responsibility because that's that sort of summed it up for me isn't it Thank you. It's
1: such a fascinating discussion and, yeah, it, so much of it resonates with me. I know myself I am often not precise enough with my language and you realise how much you are confusing people but often too late. <laughs> so I think it's a really important point. But I just wanted to pick up a bit more on this self-awareness because I talk a lot about self-awareness and helping learners to be much more self-aware in a more sophisticated way. But if I understand you correctly, you are also talking about teachers being more self-aware, which feels extremely important. So I'd just love to pick up a little bit more on that in terms of how do we best go about developing that real kind of self-awareness in a world where you want this very holistic vision for education and learning?
2: I think a lot of the um, consulting work I'm doing at the moment is within Multi Academy Trust, supporting uh, teachers and more often um, leaders, so senior and, and executive leaders. Um, and a lot of that is getting really rolling our sleeves up and really getting our um, ourselves immersed in what we mean when we use this word pedagogy. And teachers and leaders absolutely love these conversations because. Actually, pedagogy is, is what school is all about, it's what we're there for, it's our raison d'etre, isn't it? It's the, the most important thing of any of um any of our, our work in a school environment. But actually, it's often the least talked about um thing. And my little soapbox, I think, around this, and I talk about this quite extensively in the book, is that we use this word pedagogy, but actually, and and it's used to mean about a thousand different things. You know, if you're looking kind of any educational material, any conference, any event, any product at the moment, you know, pedagogy is always kind of a buzzword that started appearing everywhere, but it's used very imprecisely. And it can mean our pedagogical beliefs, our pedagogical pedagogical intentions it can refer to pedagogical methods or strategies it can refer to enacted pedagogy it can refer to implicit pedagogy politicized pedagogy you know there's, there's hundreds of different things it can refer to and I think what it is that teachers really really enjoy is really honing in on that and focusing in and just really being part of conversations that say what do we actually mean when we use this word and what are we referring to and how would we see that thing where's the evidence of that thing I don't mean evidence in the sense of sort of impact evidence but how would we what's the tangible version of a pedagogical approach we can find that we can identify that we can look at that what would the tangible version of a pedagogical belief be well actually that's a much a much more complicated but wonderful conversation because you know we're looking at what's implicit in our practice and, and all those wonderful things. So the, the reason I kind of sounds like I've taken a tangent from your question, Rose, but the reason why I think that's really important is because developing that self-awareness is, I think, um, is absolutely about spending thoughtful time, and it doesn't have to be hours and hours and hours, but just spending a few thoughtful moments every now and then, just thinking very specifically, when we use pedagogical vocabulary, what actually are we referring to and where would we see it? And I think just by doing that and just having that thought once a week almost, I find that teachers then say, ah, when I was in the classroom teaching this maths lesson, it made me realise X. (laughs) Or when I was with the children on the playground and this happened, it made me think, ah, and you want those light bulb ah moments. And I think it it doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be, you know, a huge, great big course or reading volumes of materials. It's just thinking a little bit precisely and having those ah
1: moments. I love that. I love that idea about precision and making things explicit. And just taking those few moments. Yeah, makes absolute sense to me. Back to you, Karine. OK, thank you. Thank you, Fiona. That was really, really interesting. I just want to ask one more question. Is
0: there anything we should have asked you that we haven't asked you that we, that would be brilliant highlight from the book while well, we've got a few minutes left? And the reason I'm asking that, I was just to ask parents, that is there anything I should have asked you that I haven't when they came to tell me that's about something they were worried about? So just in that last few minutes can you tell us is there something that you would like to highlight from the book that would be really important for our listeners to know about
2: yes and there's there's one thing that I would really love to share and that's because it's a kind of uh plea for 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 feedback I guess on this particular part of the book um one of the things that we have in the book in in chapter 7 is a kind of matrix grid um resource Um, that says, if if your pedagogical intentions are this, this, and this, and you have got access to this technology, that technology, this is the kind of way that you might be using it. And it just really draws attention to how the same piece of technology can be used in profoundly different ways, depending on what your pedagogical beliefs and intentions are. And I would absolutely love as much Feedback and as much thought um, and as as, you know, real ideas and examples and conversation from classroom practitioners about that um, that particular part. So it's an it's an invitation or or a plea, I guess, a request uh, for anyone who's kind of interested in exploring that space to to join in, be part of the conversation about unpacking that in in more detail.
0: Well, thank you, Fiona, so to all our listeners. This is your opportunity to contribute and, uh, and develop a wider understanding. Thank you, Fiona. That was absolutely brilliant. Right. Moving on to our top topical top tech tips. And I every week I have difficulty saying that. I normally leave it to Rose, but this week I was going to do it. So, Rose, have you got a topical top tech tip that you could share with us?
1: Actually, it's quite interesting. Thanks, Karine, and and thanks, Fiona. That was brilliant. And it's interesting that my topical top tech tip, I think, aligns with what we've been talking about because it's about focus. And what I'm suggesting is that actually, rather than feeling overwhelmed, particularly at the moment with all the conversations around AI and feeling like you've got to be on top of all of this technology, I think it's important to develop a deep understanding of one or two key pieces of technology that do something that you want to do. And I think that might also be relevant to that table in Chapter 7 of your book, Fiona, where by getting a deep understanding of one or two pieces of technology, you can see how that you can use them in quite different ways. And, And actually they can be powerful for different ways of teaching, learning, just using them yourself as as part of your life so I think my topical top tech tip is to really make sure that you understand the technology that you do have pick just a few pieces we spend huge amounts of money on our technology and there's so much of it that we don't necessarily use because we just don't realize it's there I know I've just bought a um a new phone not the newest model of phone because I just think it's such an extortionate amount of money to, to fork out on something that's really not very big, but, but a more modern phone. Uh, gosh, that makes me sound like such a Scrooge, doesn't it? Uh, anyway, and I'm I'm noticing that, you know, I've moved from one model to another and there are things that are different. And I've actually kind of thought, OK, I need to sit down and just have a play with this. For a little bit to make sure I do really understand all the different functionalities and and how I might use them better in the things that I'm doing. So I think yeah, let's make sure we understand the bits of tech that that we think we understand as fully as we might. Well, that's
0: brilliant, Rose. I think we must have all had the same thought processes here because what I'm about to say, and we and honestly, this is this is us talking and telling you our top tech tips. Also li- links into Fiona and what Rose has just said. But Rose, can I just say? It's not because you're being tight, it's because you're being sensible. Because if you bought the latest model of phone, there'd be glitches. You want them to find out the glitches before you would consider buying. That's why we all don't buy the newest (laughs) So what's my topical top tech tip? Well, it's normal to feel overwhelmed or anxious about new technologies like AI, especially if you don't know much about them. However, the first step to overcoming those feelings is to recognise you don't need to be an expert and to develop the mantra, I don't understand it yet, yet being the word. Now, in fact, Peter Twining, who is the Professor of Education Innovation in School and Education Technology at the University of Newcastle in Australia, Australia, and who incidentally was co-author with Fiona to their latest publication, suggests that you focus on tools that you can use frequently, maximising the impact of the time spent learning to use them. So I was thinking about this and I was thinking one of the examples that, that always comes to mind with me is that across the world, we've got so many schools using smart boards of one kind or the other. But are you utilising the templates or the graphic organisers or the timelines or the mind maps, which can be used to visually organise information, and engage students in the learning process? Because there's so many uses. And if you are using a smart board, are you getting the most out of it? to meet the pedagogical needs that you've decided are important. So my topical top tech tip, first of all, is to develop the mantra. I don't understand it yet, but to do exactly what Rose and thinking about what Fiona's been saying, to start maximising the impact of the tools that you currently have. And Fiona, what about you? Have you got one topical top tech tip? I have already shared one in a previous podcast, but have you got any more that you'd like to share with us today?
2: Well, hearing what you said just then um, it did make something spring to mind. And I don't know if I'm brave enough to try and say a to- topical tech topic. I'm, I'm going to get my words in a muddle there, I think. Um, but it's about it's about sequencing, actually. So um, I was working with the school very recently and they were very excited about um, using a Uh, a sort of collaborative sticky note um, piece of software and all the classes and all the teachers are very excited that they had all learned how to use this and they were using this and they were trying to use this in lots of lessons Um, and what was really really interesting is I watched two parallel lessons where the teachers are taught off the same lesson plan and they were using the um, so it's essentially the same lesson and the same Uh, The collaborative sticky board as part of that. But when we actually um, observed in classroom, the sequencing was very different and it was absolutely fascinating to observe. So in a nutshell, in one classroom, the children have been developing their ideas. And then an, um, we taught partners in pairs and then captured those ideas on these sticky post-it notes on the collaborative board. And then after that, the teacher kind of read them back to the class, um, you know, pulling out a few examples. And then they kind of stopped and moved on. Um, in the other class, what they had done is the children had um, started building ideas using the sticky note uh, collaborative board. And some had raced ahead and added, added their ideas and others had kind of watched to see what people had put and then built on those ideas and extended them. Then the, the um, children used their talk partners to discuss the ideas they could see on the screen, and then they expanded those ideas. And then the teacher used those ideas to extend the whole class thinking a step further, and it it um, segued straight into the next. Part of the activity which built on that wow. accumulated knowledge. Now, when you looked at the lesson plan, it would have looked like exactly the same lesson, but the impact on the knowledge development, the social constructive is all those one totally different. And it was all just about sequencing. What order is the technology? being used in relation to the talk in terms of the thinking in terms
0: of knowledge development. So sequencing, that's my technological top tip. tip. <laughs> and brilliant collaboration there, almost collaborative magapying from each other to learn and develop and grow, wasn't it? That's brilliant. Thank you so much to our guest today, Fiona, who's, who's given us a wealth of information. Uh, and I and I urge you to to get that book, not just because Fiona's um, on our podcast, but because actually it's got some really useful strategies that you can use in our schools tomorrow across the world. And so I want to say a special thank you to Fiona. And so it's thank you from me and thank you from. I was going to jump in and say a huge thank you to you both for having me as part of the podcast. My it's Two of my favourite people. So thank you so much. I was thinking, Rose, we need an ending. I was thinking, I was thinking, thank you from me and thank you from him and thank you from her and thank you from... <laughs> Roland, you're right. And Roland was right. It's Spider-Man, not Superman. You see, I'm rubbish with superheroes, aren't I? All I there could is, see was... not don't worry. Bye-bye. One is good as, great, great, as another. <laughs> but I just could see with great power comes great responsibility. I wanted to say with great trust comes great responsibility. But yeah, thank you, Fiona. Yeah, that I, was I, brilliant. It was great. It was a
1: really interesting discussion and it, it knitted together nicely.